hello. Welcome back to episode six of Life Lately. I'm not sure if anybody noticed, but I haven't posted in a while. I've taken a bit of a hiatus. Actually, I'm sure if anyone noticed because none of you asked. No one said, where's the podcast? Why aren't you posting? What happened? Are you okay? No one. Not a peep out of you 65 followers. So shame on you. And for that, I'm quitting. (laughs) Kidding. Imagine if I was like that. No, I'm back. Um, Not that anyone cared, but I was on a little break because my dog died. I'm going to be blunt and just make you feel bad because nobody asked if I was okay. Really wasn't. (laughs) Um, Yeah, it's been tough. Toby, the love of my life. I loved him so much. He's so cute. But he passed away a couple weeks ago. Almost two weeks, actually. Hasn't even been two weeks. So I just took uh, kind of a week off. It's actually been five weeks, so I don't want to blame my entire hiatus on him. I just, it's just been a rough couple of months. So I've just taken, you know, time off and I'm back now. Cause who, what kind of podcast host would I be if I just left you guys hanging for two months? Not me, not for my four active listeners. Couldn't be me. So I put my big girl pants on and we're back for episode six. And I'm actually quite excited that we're back because this was one of my favorite episodes. I think my favorite that I've done so far because it was really real and raw. And I think that's like my favorite style. Now that now I know. So I'll go for more real and raw episodes. But so today I had the fantastic opportunity to chat with Jill Van Jean, who, if you don't know, is the CEO of Fatso. And Fatso is a form of nut butter that is sold in Canada. It's Victoria local, which is so cool. It started in Victoria. It's being sold in Whole Foods, everywhere that you can find peanut butter. It It's almond butter and peanut butter now. They're really expanding. And it's just super cool that I got this opportunity because, I don't know, it's like a product that I use. Jill was a cool gal. I'm really excited for you guys to hear this one. But And also before we get started, shout out to my good friend, Danielle Lowe, because she actually suggested that I reach out to Jill. So thank you so much for that suggestion, Danielle. If you're listening, you're probably not, but if you are, thank you. And shameless plug for Danielle here. She actually started her own business not too long ago called Doodlebug Pet Food, where she is selling, hand-making and selling, might I add, um, cricket-based dog treats, which is so cool. They're hypoallergenic, they're nutritious, they're good for your dog, and you're supporting a small woman-owned business, which is so cool. And I'm, I think Danielle's like my like idol. Like I really look up to that girl. So (laughs) thanks Danielle for the suggestion. And without further ado, let's hear from Jill. Yeah. So my name is Jill Van Jean at car now because I just recently went through a name change. So I've hyphenated my last name after eight years of marriage and one child. So Jill Van Jean car. And I'm the founder and CEO of Fatso Nut Butters here in Victoria, BC. So to start things off, I I think I actually the first time I ever heard of Fatso was through Dragon's Den back in the day when I used to watch that. So how was that experience? Like I've, I've never met someone that's been on Dragon's Den. So how was that whole thing? It was great. It was it was really fun. Um, as I said off the top, like I, I'm sort of a natural talker and um, not a lot of things come naturally to me, okay. but um, being in front of a camera uh, it has always been something that I've just had no issue with. 
so that was that was a it was a really fun experience for me. It was it was great because I was actually at this this trade show over the past weekend, and I caught up with some other entrepreneurs that had been on Dragon's Den, and it was a really mixed bag for people, yeah. right? But um, I I really enjoyed it. It was in my first year or just after my first year, um, and uh, it was extremely exciting. Uh, I remember standing, uh, you're like on this huge soundstage, and I remember standing at the top of these stairs. They make you climb up this huge set of stairs, and then you stand behind a door. Right. And then the door opens, and then you walk down this huge set of stairs. And I had this moment where I was like, you don't have to do this. You're nervous? I kind of get this way because I always feel like public speaking or like before I've been in front of like a camera or it's something live, like a live pitch, which I've done a lot of, right. it always feels like you're about to jump off a cliff yeah. uh, because you're, you're diving into the unknown. And I had made the mistake of watching one too many Dragon's Den um, uh, videos before on. I did it. Right. Yeah. And I saw a few like, not like bombs in a way that like it the the deal went sideways it was like people who froze in front of the camera and they the producers like pick up on that stuff and they use it so I was like it can feel kind of like it's out of your control so um I was like all right like you could literally walk away you will suffer no embarrassment nobody would judge you like you can never have this on the public record there's no um there's no risk of yeah. fucking up right now. Right. Um, I don't know if I can swear on your podcast, no, but you, you just might have to believe me a couple times. <laughs> no, um, but I was actually talking to somebody about this recently. And that moment, I think, is a moment that most entrepreneurs have to choose through on a regular basis, which is because entrepreneurship is so inherently risky that every yeah. day we have to kind of wake up and choose the unknown as opposed to like, I could have a job where somebody like, and I, I, fantasize sometimes about like a government job mm-hmm. where like I answer to somebody, somebody else has the responsibility. I don't have to carry this burden. Yeah. All I know is I get to show up at my job the next day I get paid, whatever. Right. Like okay. there's a lot of comfort in that, but I feel like that moment was one of the first real big moments that I had to make those decisions to like step yeah. into the unknown on a constant basis and I think that's really the, um, that is the mark of an entrepreneur is the willingness yeah. to constantly step so into vulnerable, I feel like too, like that's not something yeah. that everyone, especially like with a new product that you're kind of facing towards the world for the first, not for the first time, but like, you know, that's a lot of eyes yeah. on you for, it is. so you, it is. I noticed in your episode, you didn't, cause like, I feel like normally once they give you the deal, you can like have a couple of minutes to go chat. If you have like a partner or something. That's I remember yeah. that, but in your episode, you didn't, right? I was watching it a few days ago, you, unless they cut it out. But like, it was just like live that you had to like give your decision right there to whoever you wanted to. Yeah, that- I think I could have. I wanted a deal with Arlene um, oh. because she had worked with women and she worked in, in CPG or consumer packaged goods before. So she was really my target. Um, I had offers from everybody. Yeah. Uh, they made it sound like it was like a real cliffhanger when I was like, is she going to make me an offer? Okay. And she did. But you know, it like I knew in my heart of hearts, it wasn't a good deal. Um, but I really wanted to work with her and I, I never have, unfortunately, cause I, I, we didn't end up going through with the deal, but I've always really like Arlene, if you're listening, <laughs> you go. um, she's, she's really incredible. And, yeah. um, I, uh, 
you know, it was a decision that I was like, okay, worst case scenario, I can go through with this, but I really just wanted the opportunity to talk with, with, um, Arlene. I never got that opportunity, unfortunately, but that's just the way it goes, right? Like it's either you make a deal or you don't. Right. So it was a lot lot higher percentage than you had initially given to it. Right. Of. Yes. Yeah. 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 I ended up, um, I ended up, uh, having investors come in locally here in Victoria, uh, was way better deal. And, uh, it was good. It like definitely like put me on this path to a different stage of growth, which is great. But, uh, I think it would have been wonderful to work with Arlene and I got a lot out of Dragon's Den. It's a, it's a very evergreen, um, bit of publicity for me because even at this trade show I was at just this past weekend, people were like, Oh, I just saw you on Dragon's Den. I was like, that was four years ago, but thank you. (laughs) It's anywhere. I guess we can your name. Yeah. It's cool. It's on Netflix and that's been really like fun to see. Um, but yeah, I think it, it's like, it's a rite of passage, uh, mm-hmm. for many entrepreneurs. If you can, um, go through the, like even just the process of doing it locally where you pitch to producers, like it's a good place to cut your teeth. Uh, it's accessible. Um, I mean the whole filming part is not as accessible. You have to pay for everything. So you kind of have to have, oh, you do. Okay. yeah, 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 yeah. But, uh, it was a super exciting experience. Yeah. That it looked, you, you were a natural on there for real. I didn't, when you say you're comfortable on the camera, yeah, it, it showed. But um, I, I will say this though about that, I am not a natural in terms of like that pitch. I had honed to every inflection. I must have done it in my hotel room seventy five times. I was gonna say it was like perfect. Yeah, you didn't even mess up yeah. once. <laughs> yeah, I am not good at like just like trying to remember because I'll, I'll forget things and I did yeah. forget things, but yeah. I, uh, I, I sat there like if, when I know I'm going in to do a pitch where people are going to be watching it, like I will get it down to every single bit of punctuation before I step on to in front of any camera. So. Yeah. But something that you mentioned on Dragon's Den that I didn't um, actually know was like, so normally when I think of the term founder or CEO, I think of like mm-hmm. you um, creating the product from scratch, but that mm-hmm. wasn't the case with Fatso, right? So you like actually mm-hmm. acquired the brand. So tell me a little bit about like how you found the product, what like made you want to take yeah. it on and the whole acquiring process. Yeah. The, the, um, the person that created the concept of Fatso was local to Victoria. Um, I'm like hesitant to talk about him only because he <laughs> likes to, um, remind me of mm-hmm. where I came from, right. um, which is fine. I, I understand that. Um, but yeah, he uh, he and his partner had developed the recipe and the name and we're selling it locally here in Victoria. Okay. And I love the product. And I was just like, this is like a million dollar idea, but it was, it was really not going anywhere. It was on a few shelves here in Victoria. Um, I'd asked to come in and help and I was turned down. And then um, I was notified that they uh, had gone under due to not producing the product with the proper licensing. Um, so I was able to snap it up uh, at that point. And like we've since like re-optimized the recipe actually a number of times. So it was actually very far away from what it originally was. Originally was. Um, and uh, we've obviously grown it to six other SKUs and, yeah. uh, you know, different nuts and stuff. But uh, yeah, so that process was very interesting for me because I... Um, because people are like, I think when they think about, you know, a founder story, people love to think about this sort of um, spark of genius that happens. Yeah. And then there's this picture of like, you know, making it out of their kitchen and the scrappiness. And I did all that. Like I actually was working at a health food restaurant after being unemployed for a year and a half, 
um, after getting a master's degree, which was like a really hard reality for me. Yeah, of course. Um, and then, um, you know, building it up in the back of this kitchen and then moving to co-packing. And that was, I mean, that's a very, that's actually a pretty common process. I don't know why we all, as entrepreneurs like to be like, we're so special. Yeah. Like we found this, like, you know, we have this very organic process, but most companies start that way, at least for the first time it comes from a place like that. But uh, yeah, my founder story is actually really messy because I, you know, the, before I found it fast, like I, I didn't do it cause I was like, this is a great idea. I mean, it was, but I was also just in this like really intensive place of desperation around like finding a career path. Um, and I was in a really bad mental space when I found a fat. So I was not doing well. Um, right. I had you been in recovery. You'd, you'd graduated. Yeah, I did. Yeah. I came into recovery from drugs and alcohol in 2010. So yeah. doing my master's degree, um, which I completed in 2015, okay. um, was like this sort of like, you know, getting back to what I'd always intended and, you know, this sort of making good on these promises and, you know, reclaiming my life, so yeah. to speak. Um, and then I graduated top of my class and published my work and was jobless. Didn't want to do a PhD. I had just become very disillusioned with academia and was like really scared that I'd end up at 40 and still being like, now what? I have a PhD. Nobody, nobody fucking cares if you have a PhD anymore. So um, so that was like, that was the place where I was when this peanut butter company sort of came across my desk and, you know, it was like, I guess, I guess I'll fucking do this. Like whatever. Okay. So you, were you like super excited about it or was it just kind of like, like you said, like a desperate kind of, I just need something. It was pretty desperate. Um, I like I had a very, very deep belief that it could be a really cool company. Okay. I didn't, I never in my wildest dreams thought it would be what it is today. Right. Um, it's funny. I've actually gone back to sort of investigate my state of mind during that period of time. And like, all I can really know for sure is that I was like, I'm just going to do this for now. Um, I got, it's funny actually, now you bring it up because like, during that period of time, I got really into baking and that was kind of the one thing that kept me mentally afloat was like being unemployed was like being able to produce something of value at the end of the day. Right. Uh, it was definitely a metaphor for that because I did a lot of like depression baking. Right. Uh, so I think it had a lot to do with that. I just, it was an opportunity. It was like, okay, this thing got dropped into your lap. Like these guys... Um, have had their inventory seized like citywide. They're dead in the water. Yeah. Like all I can do is go and ask to see if they'll like unload the recipe and the concept and and let me run with it. And I did. Um. So it was like it was really day to day, honestly. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, right. um, it was it was exciting because it was working. But there was I remember distinctly. Um, I was going to deliver this big order to the root seller. I was driving down and it was like the early days and startups can be scary and very um like there's a lot of unknowns attached to it and I just remember thinking like if this doesn't fucking work like I don't know what comes next like I really like, I remember being really scared for myself because I was like fuck like I like I don't like I was i I had this vision of like my family at Christmas being like, oh yeah, remember that time like Jill started mm. a peanut butter company? Right. And that one, like that really cut very deep because I was like, this could just be something 
that. Yeah. I feel that, right? So in general, I feel like just like starting your own company, like without your circumstances is just like a hard and scary thing. Like that, I feel like every entrepreneur has that thought at the back of their mind, but then and I'm glad you mentioned the like being unemployed and just like all that, because I feel like mm. people are kind of like ashamed of like after uh, school yes. and graduating, like not having a job, but it's such like a normal thing. And the fact that you weren't someone that just like had like a creative idea and like wanted to go get, yeah. start a peanut butter company. Like it just like found like it happened to come by a way, you know? So it's a very like yeah. normal person story, you know? So it is. And like, you know, I like, just to anybody that's listening right now that that is unemployed, like I, I spoke publicly about this um, a while back at this thing called Fuck Up Nights. But um, the thing that I've, I I find about unemployment is that it's um, it's a very hidden form of depression, and yeah. it's a very frustrating place to be because most unemployed people really want to work and productivity is just something that's sort of ingrained. Like we want to be able to like contribute and produce things and like, you know, um, have substance in our life. And a lot of that does come through work. And I have thoughts on like that going to the other end of the spectrum. I think people fetishize work a bit, but um, we as humans have this natural sort of like wanting to participate in society through different skills and, and work and whatever that is. And, when you don't have that and you want it so badly and there is just a point in time, there's a point in time where people are like, no, 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 don't worry. Like you're, you're like, you're going to, you're going to be good, but that expires very quickly. Mm -hmm. And you become a burden to yourself and to your family and to society. And people do start to judge you for it. And you carry that shame and it does not help you find a job. I can tell you that much. It can create a lot of depression. Like I, I, I was extremely depressed. And especially when you've um, gone through like the schooling and like the, a master's degree too. I feel like that's just like oh, yeah. you, you're certified. You know, like that's yeah. even more disappointment. Yeah, and I think a lot of people are going through that right now. Yeah. Um, I just think that our our the current way that we operate in terms of like the employed versus unemployed, how we get jobs, how we retain jobs is. Yeah um super toxic and uh incredibly challenging uh and it's only going to get harder yeah like a lot of times like if i you know during that period of time i was like fuck jill you should have just done like a skill trade like go be a welder for christ's yeah. sakes there's job security yeah. in that right so yeah. um yeah it's tough it's tough out there right now it's way tougher than when i was unemployed it's even harder, especially with the cost of living. And um, I, you know, I, I don't, you know, people who grapple with unemployment, I think it really is an under-recognized um, uh, mental state in many ways, um, yeah. especially for people who, who really are, you know, driven to do that. And I think, I think most people that are unemployed do want to work. There's so much rhetoric, rhetoric right now, but yeah. people are like, oh, nobody wants to work. It's like, no, everybody wants to work, but people are also starting to recognize their worth and like, you know, work that, that yeah. I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So changed what working means to people. So yeah, (laughs) definitely. Yeah. For your kind of academic background, did you have any business entrepreneurial (laughs) when you decided to acquire Fatso? What was video? No, no. I wanted to be. uh, I wanted to work for the UN. I wanted to be like, uh, uh, like a humanitarian. Like I wanted to go do humanitarian work abroad. Um, I'd done my undergraduate degree in political science a way back. I graduated in 2005. Okay. Um, so it wasn't until about 10 years later that I had completed the master's. 
Um, and I always wanted to go work. Um, I think like, and as I mentioned before, like I was, I came into recovery in 2010. Um, and during that was a really like between 2005 and 2010 was the darkest period of my life. But I think had I, um, not had this condition, I may have pursued, uh, law or, um, like a job at the UN, uh, something like that. That was really where my ambitions were. Uh, so when I went back to school, um, I went uh, into a program called Human Security and Peacebuilding and uh, went and worked in northern Uganda doing research. But um, I actually became really disillusioned with um, the international industry uh, okay. while I was over there um, and, and really started to question quite early on when I landed in East Africa, like what the fuck are we all doing here like it just is very it's very exploitative um yeah. i mean i could really go on yeah. with that but um so yeah i became quite disillusioned with that and you know that was where i was sort of left when i came back home and i decided well i'm just gonna go work for the government and right you know i probably so, would have done well in there and what but. i remember on dragon's end you mentioned uh at that time i don't know what what, what year was that 2016 was that that was 2017. 2017. Yeah. So at that time, if I remember correctly, you you were the sole employee of Fatso, right? So you had started everything <laughs> like from yeah. scratch, but you know, like you, you were there alone. So mm-hmm. with no like academic experience in this kind of mm-hmm. industry, how what was that learning curve like? Like trying to. Um, well, I will say this. Um, one of the good things about a master's degree is that like you really get to learn a lot about research. And so research, problem solving, project management, all that type of stuff like was really a big part of the program that I was in. So I did have a foundation, whether I was in a place to actually accept that at the time, because I was so irritated mm-hmm. that I'd done this big master's degree and wasn't using it, but I actually was. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so the first two years was, I mean, I, I recall Googling like, steps to starting a business yeah, literally, yeah. but it was okay. funny I was like at this trade show and this young woman came up to me and she was trying to start this business um a food business and she's like do you have any like how do you do it and I was like well that's a that's a those are two different questions how do you do it like spiritually is one question emotionally and mentally yeah. the other question is practically like and I think most people that are going to embark into business, they've made the decision. They have the mental fortitude to do it or they don't and they'll still succeed. I mean, I don't I don't think you need to have a ton of fortitude necessarily. But um, the other part was I said, well, do you have your like, did you get your business license? She's like, no. I was like, what about your insurance? She's like, no. I was like, do you have a business lawyer? No. Trademark? No. I was like, all right, write down these five things. Yeah. And she was like, I, this is perfect. I have yeah. a to-do list. So a lot of the time, it's the it's the really mundane fundamentals that people uh, need to start with. Once you have that, it's about understanding your industry. Right. And that took me a good two years to understand. Um, and I just went on instinct. And I knew one thing was that the product was super good. It tasted mm-hmm. amazing. People loved it. And whenever somebody tasted it, they I got a customer. It was just hands down, that's the way it worked. And to, to this day, it's often the way it works. Right. Uh, and I demoed in stores every weekend for two years straight from Victoria to Nanaimo to Squamish, all over the lower mainland, Kelowna, Vernon. I was all over the place. So 
I would get in the store and what that did is it taught me the retail processes. Mm-hmm. It ingrained me with buyers, with, um, with, uh, retail floor staff who would advocate for my product because I befriended them and I, you know, talked to them about the product and it got me in front of customers and our customers are evangelical. They taste it. They love it. They tell their family, they tell their friends, Great. those guys taste it. And it just goes out exponentially from there. So yeah. 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 So that was really how I operated. I was doing my own distribution and my own sales brokerage. Um, but just based off had, of like Googling knowledge, like you just kind of learned the ropes. Yeah. I mean, like there was a store I would want to get into. I would like email around. I would call. When's the manager going to be in? Can I come in? Can I drop off samples? Um, you know, I did a, uh, this sort of thing with, um, with uh, Whole Foods. They used to do these like sort of speed dating practices mm-hmm. where you go in, you pitch your product to a buyer they look at the cost, they look at the product and they say yes or no. And that's how I got in. They don't do that anymore. It was fun though. It was, it was yeah. wild. It was crazy. Yeah. It was like this hotel lobby just filled with food entrepreneurs. Right. It was like very high energy, a lot of anxiety. Like yeah. everybody's hopes are just pinned on that, but yeah. uh, I had a good outcome. So that was cool. But um, yeah, I mean, there's, there's definitely um, a learning curve and I will say this, like I am a, relatively outgoing and gregarious person. Um, I'm good at putting myself in front of people. Um, I wouldn't call myself an extrovert because I do like my own time, but I definitely don't mind putting myself out there, which I think was probably my biggest strength. Yeah, that's definitely a benefit. So (laughs) since that was your biggest strength and you had a lot of in-person demos and you were able to kind of showcase yourself as like the brand, did COVID really mess things up for you when you were no longer allowed doing that? Royally. Royally. Yeah. That's been the biggest um, hurdle for us, I think, as a company this this year. Like we've hit this new growth point as well, and we haven't been able to keep up with it, okay. you know, in a way that like we're getting big listings, but like we can't get out to the locations. We can't be in stores. We're not meeting with buyers. So it's become quite like very hard for us to manage. Like COVID has been a tough year. Our first year of COVID we had a big excess of inventory because we expected all these big POs to come in and then right. grocery stores like shifted to, uh, you know, retrofitting their stores to mm-hmm. make them safe. There was just, there, nobody was bringing in new products. So we were left holding all this inventory. Right. And like, I am one of the things that I've been really grateful to be able to do with Fatso is we've done a ton of philanthropic and charity work, um, right. mostly dealing with social justice. And uh, right. we... Donated over $200,000 worth of product to underserved communities, organizations, and food banks um, right across Canada and into the United States. So that was great, but it also resulted in us not having a profitable year, which I was like, I don't care. Who cares? We're not going to be profitable. Well, the bank cares, yeah. unfortunately. <laughs> they care a lot. Uh, and uh, potential investors care. So that was a bit of a learning curve, but I think also if I look back and I probably would have done and I would have done it all over again, um, mostly because like, I don't know, this is kind of part of the reason what I signed up to do was we, we had this probably, like, it would, Different I don't know, like peanut butter. Yeah, it is. But it's also like, we had all this excess peanut butter and there were lineups at food banks. You were seeing it on TV all the time and people clearing out shelves and, you? you know, yeah vulnerable communities and individuals 
who only have maybe five to ten dollars a day to spend on food can't go and stock up. So like food banks became super important. Nobody was donating to food banks because people were hoarding it. And like nobody wanted to go outside. Like it was a scary time. And I just was Mm -hmm. like, well, we have peanut peanut butter is like high calorie, protein rich, like nutrient dense. And we had so much of it. And we could have sold it to like a wholesaler. Yeah. Like down in the States, we, we, we could have made our money back. Right. But it felt, that felt like saying that now even feels like fucking dirty. Like it's just when your community is like, this was a monumental event for humanity. And we had every opportunity to step up for our community. And we did that. Um, and like, yeah, if I think about it now, I mean, like, I, I can't imagine making a different decision at that yeah, point. No. So I, Definitely. I feel like when you're starting a business, too, that's just something that you have to think about is how you're going to run things and how you're going to kind of stay mm-hmm. true to your... Yeah. I'm sure, like, originally when you started, that was kind of your plan, too, was to... Totally was. ...be a good Samaritan, yeah. you know? So it's... Like, yeah, I always said, yeah, if we ever, like, made, had any success or resources with that so that I would, you know, use them to try and do what I was gonna do with my master's degree but like locally with you know um communities that we can actually uh, help and we've done some great work uh with um sex worker rights which is extremely stigmatized oh okay well yeah so i I was just gonna say that you're such like a for lack of better term like a jack of all trades in the best way like you do a lot of things so um beyond fatso i know that you're very like you said passionate Mm -hmm. about social justice so can you Mm -hmm. talk about is it peers is that what kind of started peers yeah yeah so i think it was in my second year it was international women's day i was on the instagram and like i just hadn't given a ton of thought to that yet right and um everybody was doing all these like fundraisers for like these women's programs that were like really big and and i kind of thought like this is very general, like this sort of like women as this sort of monolith, like International Women's Day. And I started to think about who, what women get missed in this the most. Who, who are we not talking about during mm-hmm. when we talk about International Women's Day and we're, you know, resharing memes and like, um, so I thought of peers, um, because there's a real intersection there. I mean, there's women, there's men, there's non-binary people. Just uh, explain what peers is just for people that don't. Oh, know. I'm sorry. It's a it's a it's a sex worker resource uh, organization that's run for uh, sex workers, current and former, uh, in by current and former sex workers in Victoria. Yeah, and they're certainly part of a larger movement. Um, you know, nationally, internationally, really, for uh, sex worker rights and and freedoms. Right. Um, but the I just thought, okay, well, if we're going to do some fundraising, um, and it wasn't really fundraising. I was like, for every comment, I'm going to be giving $2 to peers. And it just like went, we had so many comments. And I think we raised about $2,000 that year. And uh, I contacted them. I said, you know, I've got this this amount of money that I would like to donate. And I got a message back from the executive director. And she said, we've never had a a donation this big for a public corporation that's uh or private but like public facing company yeah. uh she was really taken aback and one of the things that she said to me that has really shaped the way that I use funds was uh lending your name to something that was so highly stigmatized and marginalized mm-hmm. means more than the money itself yeah so the fact that 
we know we had a great reputation in town in NBC and we were like, Hey, we're going to stand up for sex worker rights. And that was like, I was like, this is where I go with everything. So when we are doing any type of fundraising, when we're donating um, any type of cash or funding uh, or product, we are looking at who's being missed and where can we, um, where can we best serve our community that way? And that's really been the grounding principle in all of the self uh, or all of the um, social justice work that we've done uh, and environmental work that we've done, you know, standing by like, you know, Ferry Creek and land defenders, water defenders, uh, those type of things that are extremely polarizing and extremely divisive for whatever reason. I mean, yeah, but um, yeah, so we've, we've decided that that's the route we're going to take and it does not always work in our favor. I mean, people I was gonna say, do you get backlash for that kind of stuff? We do. Um, sometimes Mo- overall though, people know who we are Yeah, and I feel like you're had... very forward facing as like the brand of, of Fatso. Like you're kind yeah. Of like, so it's, it might not be that much of a shock that someone's so, it's like, not like people know what we do. There's a, there's a quite a bit of media out there about us and what we do. Um, the one that was the most divisive was uh, when I wrote an op-ed for the CBC around supporting the railway blockades mm. um, when uh, there was land defenders over in Ontario. Yeah. And we had stock that was coming out to BC. We needed it. It was going to get blocked by this. And I saw all these business leaders appealing to like, this is going to destroy our economy. And all of a sudden, I was like, this is so fucking weird that they're just, all they're talking about is their money and not about like yeah. what the fundamental issues are. Yeah. Um, for indigenous sovereignty and, and land back and land rights and water rights and all that stuff. So yeah. it just, it really erased the conversation and I felt like I was being spoken for. And right. uh, so I contacted the CBC and pitched them the idea. And I said, I want to, I want to write this op-ed. And, and you, you got know. negative backlash, good backlash. What was the... We had a lot of backlash or we had a lot of, lot of um, feedback, not all the bad, but the bad was so bad, but it was funny. I remember it was like, it was right before this, actually another big trade show that we do every year. And um, my sister is in PR. uh, And uh, so I started to get these emails. I got on the phone and I was like, this (laughs) is going to be intense. Um, And the hate mail was like spectacular. Really? Really? Um, Oh yeah. 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 We had to spend time like for a, a peanut butter company that they would waste. Yeah, their time. well, I mean, I think people were just like I get like I don't know. I mean, I I think people make their decisions based on a lot of different experiences, but you know, there are people who just see the like rule of law as this sort of Im- immovable thing that yeah. is always on the side of justice, and you know, we know that it's right. not. So we do get a lot of people who don't like that approach. Um, but we have this one guy and, oh my God, he was furious, calls all sorts of names. But Lindsay and I sat down and we crafted this really thoughtful approach. Like, we understand the issues here. We understand why this is concerning for you. You know, this is why we're doing this. We want to make sure that there is like more, um, you know, um, there's two sides to this, that it's not just the business community speaking for one right. thing. Um, this is our approach to business. This is why we did. So it was a very, um, it was a very, uh, well-drafted response to people that was thoughtful because I felt like that was the best way to respond to people who were very angry 
And uh, so we sent this email back to this guy. And then that afternoon we got an email and it was like, oh, it like gives me goosebumps. It's so funny. We totally turned him around. And in his email, he attached a picture of Fatso with a receipt because we had turned around, turned him around so quickly that he had now become a fan of the brand and gone out and bought it. afternoon bought And my sister was like, I don't think I can ever top this in terms of crisis management. Like yeah. he actually changed somebody's mind. So we had a yeah. few like that, which was very cool. But yeah, it was, it was, um, you know, we, we've, we weather those storms well, and I accept that, you know, not everybody is going to be in a place where they are really able to take in the broader issues and these right. very nuanced arguments for social justice. And I think people, you know, we try not to fight with people on the internet too yeah. much. I've been known hard. to yeah, it's do hard. that on a personal level, but yeah, um, but yeah Does, we, we definitely try to make sure that people feel included. Did that feedback and backlash just surrounding all the social justice work that you do regardless of peers mm. or the pipeline or whatever mm. did that affect more than just kind of the brand like were investors ever kind of turned nah, back no or no our investors were like pretty yeah i don't even know if they knew about it <laughs> <laughs> they're they're good guys um they let me do what i need to do yeah. um you know we're we are also a B Corp company. We got our B Corp certification, um, right. which if for people that don't know that, um, we're a, like our, our, our business articles of incorporation, um, are, we've made, sorry, I'm not explaining this well. We're a public benefit company. That's our, that's our business designation so that we are driven to place purpose before profit. Right. Um, and, um, you know, we can start to do both certainly, but we really aim to um, make a lot of different changes within our company, uh, especially on like the environmental side of things, uh, and then pushing forward a lot of the agenda that we have with social justice work. Um, and it really codifies our commitment to doing those things. And we're the only nut butter in Canada that holds that distinction. Crazy uh, that more so, companies don't do that. Pardon me? Crazy that more companies aren't. Oh, they are. Trust me. Post-pandemic yeah. and post the, yeah. this sort of like second wave uh, civil rights movement, which has, mm. you know, not had the same momentum, I will say, as the first one, which is frustrating to see. But um, a lot of companies are doing that because a lot of companies did a lot of good, really good work. And now they see yeah. that they can, um, they can, you know, join the B Corp community. And, and there's a lot of good evidence out there, too, that like B Corp communities or um, socially driven and purpose driven companies do better profitably they acquire customer trust a lot faster and retain it for a lot longer yeah. uh, there's just a lot of good evidence to show that when we are you know ethically working corporations that we can um that it, it does it does well for the bottom line i mean yeah. that shouldn't be the driver it certainly wasn't for us but i mean we've done the research on it because we are going to go into a funding round and we're going to need to justify it so, so sure well prepared for that. talking about like ethics and you mentioned sustainability a couple of times. So I know mm -hmm. that Fatso, I guess for me, one of the key factors that stood out of it that probably is like the main sustainability kind of aspect of it is mm -hmm. the lack of palm oil in the nut butter. That's like a big, yeah. um, right? It's like a big thing that yeah. people are doing. So yeah. like, would you, first question, would you think that is like Fatso known as like a very sustainable brand? Is that something that like your customers know about the company? Is that something that you're working towards? Yeah. So I would say two things to that. I think, um, 
Palm oil is one of the things that we've we've really struggled with that. Mm -hmm. So I've never put palm oil because I like many consumers who don't have a broad education on palm oil. Um, I was like, no, of course I'm going to put palm oil in this. Like, why yeah. would I? One of the things that palm oil does is it actually um, helps to keep the product emulsified so the oils don't separate, yeah. right. um, which is really important for nut butters uh, because people – as much as they say they don't like palm oil, they also do not like to work to get a good no. spoonful of peanut butter. Right. Uh, you can get ethically sourced palm oil. It really depends. There mm. is some greenwashing around that. We've done the research. Um, palm oil is not bad for your health either. No. Um, it has some benefits. Uh, it is the larger perception around it that's tough. Like, I, we've, we've, we've run the experiment. We have seen where we can get really good ethically sourced palm oil. Um, and it's like completely, you know, certified to the nines and, um, but it's not, you can do that, but public perception on it is really challenging. So there's two reasons why, and it's, it is hard to find like a good, certification for palm oil that doesn't greenwash because there's still, you know, land issues associated with it. But right. um, I still think that, you know, we're not there yet. We've considered it um, because we kind of have to at some point. Mm -hmm. The reason why we discontinued our, our chocolate flavor, our cocoa, was that we had a choice to use palm oil or not. And it was like separating really weird. The cocoa butter was creating these like fat globules on top. It looked really gross. And we could have solved it with palm oil. And we chose not to do that. Right. Um, and I think we might be able to push through without it. But we still have some difficulty with consistency. And it's actually one of the bigger complaints that we have with the product. Right. I would say the second thing with that is, um, and this is kind of what I thought you were going to bring up, because this is the one that we get the emails about the most, is the fact that we produce in plastic jars. That's That was a fun um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So this one has been also a very tricky one. So one of our core mandates is to keep our product excessively priced. So what that really means is that, I mean, people say you're an expensive peanut butter, but we're like, well, but we're not Skippy or Jif and we're not just straight peanuts. We're offering a highly nutrient dense and ingredient diverse product that tastes amazing. So, you know, it's not like a, a you know, quote unquote health food that is like, you know, very granola-y. It's super indulgent. It's an accessible flavor um, and one of the things that we want to do is we want to price it in a way that's in between super pricey almond and cashew butters and regular peanut butters. Um, and then offer something that's super nutrient dense, like spoon for spoon, you're going to get way more value. So we want to keep that cost as accessibly priced as possible. And we have to work like people don't, I don't think people know what it goes into day to day for us to, you know, keep our prices to where they are. Like we have to go toe to toe with retailers often. Um, to get those prices to come down again to where um, they're acceptable for us. So moving to glass um, is very difficult mm -hmm. because not only is it so much more expensive, it is also a ton of carbon output because we produce out east because it's the only place that we can produce at the volume we do now. Uh, and we have to truck that out to BC mm -hmm. and the weight on it is almost double. So the carbon offput for that is also challenging. Yeah. Um, so we've looked into a number of different solutions. And right now we can join a program that will um, essentially uh, pull out non-recyclable uh, plastics from the ocean and repurpose them. There's, a, there's some very good programs. This particular one is in Germany. We're looking at another one in mm -hmm. India. So it essentially takes like what our tonnage is and it takes it out of 
the system and it gets repurposed into other cool products. Right. Uh, and these are a lot of plastics that like can't conventionally be recycled in the conventional recycling systems. These are ones that actually have to be repurposed and condensed and um, they get turned into like flooring or whatever. Right. But um, that is also does not take our plastic out of the system. And yeah. so we're faced constantly with this very complex dilemma around our packaging. And, you know, people will be like, well, why don't you go to like compostable packaging or like, you know, you should be looking at new innovations. And here's what I'm going to say to that. And I, you know, we will do, we, we, we know exactly how much it's going to cost us per jar to move to post-consumer recycling packaging, which again, does not take the plastic out of the system, but it does use recycled plastic in our jar. We know exactly the per co- jar cost. Yeah. Yeah. The per jar cost. Um, and then this whole, um, taking it out of the system on our behalf, we know how much that's going to cost you. Right. Um, Here's the thing. You look at places like Unilever and Smuckers and all this stuff, and they need to carry the burden of this. They have the profitability, the resources, and the innovation technologies to be able to introduce compostable and sustainable packaging. Mm-hmm. They need to do it wholesale. They need, and the thing is, it's not just about them doing it. It's the perception of a company like that. It's like I think Hellman's has started to do like post-consumer recycling, but it's a very small portion of that type of packaging. And in order for consumers to come on wholesale with this, um, because packaging is going to look weird and it's going to be different and there'll probably be different like storage um, implications for it as well. Um, We need huge corporations to bring their masses of consumers along with them to lower the price, to introduce the innovations, to create the industry around it so that, smaller brands like us don't have to take on these massive hits to our cost. We can't grow our companies. Like it frustrates me to no end that we are being asked to be responsible for this when the Unilevers of the world have all of the resources to do it. Um, So that's really like that one is a, that's a puzzle piece that I've been trying to solve for a long time. Yeah. Um, and the reason I brought that up is because I think it was maybe a LinkedIn post or something that you guys came out with for your new like travel sized. Um, oh, yeah. You saw all of those? Yeah. I saw the comments. Yeah. And so it yeah. got me thinking that for like a small business, normally people, like you said, are very hard on small businesses, I feel like, for being yeah. like sustainable and stuff, but um, they definitely don't take into consideration all the bigger. No. Yeah. So So I went in, I know I was in those comments and being like that exact point. It's like, it should not be incumbent upon smaller brands to lead innovation. It needs to be something that is done. And like, this can be done at a, like governmental policy level. Like we can, we can do this stuff. Um, it just is like this. We're very, um, we just coddle these huge corporations in terms of their earnings and their profits. And it just, mm-hmm. we need to start putting um, other things first. So yeah, definitely. Yeah. It gets me, it gets me hot for sure. Yeah. <laughs> I imagine. Yeah. It could be a tough one. People are really hard on yeah. small businesses. I feel like that is just a, it's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. They really are. <laughs> yeah. Um, so kind of wrap things up. You mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. um, about your experience with addiction. So I kind of wanted to just jump into mm-hmm. that because in a previous mm-hmm. interview of yours that I was watching a few weeks ago, um, you mentioned that like 
you came from this like very like a wealthier family. You lived like in mm-hmm. a nice uplands in Victoria, which is a very nice area. Yeah. Like everything was seemingly great, you know, but like it's, you still managed mm-hmm. to fall through this rabbit hole of mm-hmm. addiction. Right. And then, yeah. but on the flip side, you managed to like get clean and get sober and then start mm-hmm. this wonderful company. So like you've, mm-hmm. you've kind of lived both ends of the extremes. I feel like that normally people don't see, someone go from like high to low back to high it's kind of just yeah. either like low to lower or you know high to low yeah. so i was wondering if you could like yeah. speak to that and just like the whole a shortened version of you said it was yeah. 15 years like the whole experience just like yeah how- yeah i mean like i started using when i was about 15 um and did that right up until i was 30 um and like i think it depends on how you approach addictions right the disease model is the way that i approach it which is like i mean that doesn't discriminate i was just born an addict and you know i'm there I mean, there's a you know million different explanations as to why people are wired in this way. Right. Uh, I think people that you know come from um, a you know family history of addictions or poverty, um, you know, or have a higher likelihood of ending mm-hmm. up in that situation for sure. But it just doesn't discriminate. I mean, I've I've come to realize that in my experience that it doesn't matter. I mean, I'm, I I went to rehab twice. Like there were moms of three, there were grandmothers, there were mm-hmm. business people, there were, you know, people who had, you know, lived their lives on the streets. Like it was just like every background. Uh, addiction just does not discriminate. Somebody that you know and love is living in addiction right now, most likely, yeah. and unable to speak about it. So that was, um, you know, it was, it was really hard on my family. I have an identical twin sister who I mentioned before, Lindsay, uh, who was also in addiction for roughly the same time, uh, we're both in recovery now. And, uh, you know, it was really, really difficult on our families and, or on our family. And, um, you know, what I will say is like, I did come from a super privileged background. I would never have been able to come to recovery in the way that I came to it without my parents' resources. Right. I will say the same thing about my business. Uh, yeah, I, you know, I started it on my own. I mean, on paper for sure. But I also had a dad that I could borrow money from to do my first run. Right. Um, and who will still provide bridge financing for me when I'm like, my cash flow and like, I can grab a check from him. Like I am, yeah. there's so many, like hard work never is like, you know, I, I don't know. People are always like, you just have to work hard. And it's just not true. Um, it is about the resources you have access to, and that relates everything back to like your gender identity. Uh, it relates to your economic standing. It relates to your network that you've been afforded. Mm-hmm. Um, it relates to your race. It relates to um, your economic status. It it like pulling yourself up from your bootstraps. I mean, there are certainly organic stories of this, um, yeah. but a lot of business people will have resources, especially people who look like me, who are like white and, um, you know, um, cis and, uh, come from privileged background. Like I, yeah, I did all the, the actual sweat work on it for sure, but I would never, and I still wouldn't, there are, there are times in the past year where I would have been like, I can't pay this PO if I hadn't been able to borrow money from my dad. We've, you know, it's like, it's a hundred percent a, um, privilege uh based business like um and i would never say that i'm like a self-made business person like i you know beyond my family like my community has lifted me up in really incredible ways and um a lot of that has to do with the way that i look Mm -hmm. um and where i came from and 
you know, I think it's really important to acknowledge that. And like, whether it's like, it's any big monumental life task or life change, um, who you have access to, what you have access to can make that journey a lot easier. Um, and I think more business people need to speak about that. Um, and in addictions, you know, like I don't fucking care how people get into recovery as long as they get into recovery. Um, but, uh, and I would never judge anybody for having like rich parents who put them in rehab because like it's a life or death situation for many people. But even then, Um, like you mentioned, you, even with those resources, you said you had to go to rehab twice. So like, you know what I mean? Like it is just, yeah. Money won't buy you sobriety. I'll tell you that much. It like, and we've seen that in the media time and time again, but like, I also, you know, got to go to a very nice rehab. Yeah, I didn't, yeah. I didn't, but it, you know, I did, um, my second time I came out, I lived in a government funded recovery house and right. stayed there for three months and sort of was like, that was a, that was probably the, the, the biggest, um, catalyst to my sobriety mm. and continued sobriety was, was that experience where I lived with other women who had lived their lives as uh, sex workers and, and heroin addicts and, uh, had lived very, very different lives than me. And we were all in the same house and under the same rules. And that was just the way it is. And, uh, I had to really, um, get out of myself and out of my way because I was like, I'm 30 and have no job prospects and I'm living right. in this government funded recovery house. And this was is just where I'm from. Was it a catalyst because you kind of saw like how different their lives were and like how your life could end up or was I it just realized kind of- that I was no different from them. Okay. You walk into that and you're like, no, no, no. Like, yeah. I mean, like some people are going to go to this like recovery house, but I'm not going to because like Mm -hmm. I, you know, come from this family and stuff. And I just, fuck. (laughs) addictions can be the great equalizer. I can tell you that much because we all have the same drive and the same reasons why we used Mm -hmm. and, you know, the same um, self-hatred and shame. Uh, It all comes from the same place, right? When you boil it down to what you feel as opposed to what you've experienced, um, it's all the same shit. So. So Mm -hmm. normally I wrap up my interviews with the question of like, what advice would you give to 21 year old Jill? But (laughs) combining that with your experience in rehab and Mm -hmm. stuff, like I don't know, like what your biggest takeaway, like what was the biggest thing you learned from rehab and has that changed the way you run Fatso? Has it changed the way Mm -hmm. you like live? Obviously the way you live life now is different, Mm -hmm. but like, what was like Mm -hmm. your biggest takeaway? Cause I guess you were, you were 21 at that age, right? Or at that time? Yeah. Uh, oh, like right in the middle. Yeah, that was right in the middle. Yeah, that was actually, I had just moved out to Montreal then. Um, but uh, I think, I mean, I'll go back to like just facing, I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to be too cliche about it, but I think at the time, like, I, I think my biggest, the thing that I would have wanted to do is I wish I got into recovery earlier. Um, right. And I wish I could tell myself, like, it's not as scary as you think it is. Mm. Um, and I, I mean, I think that that goes into business as well. It's just like when you've lived a life and you've had like these types of experiences, like, you know, they're like business seems pretty low stakes compared to some of the shit that I pulled when I was in addiction. Um, But I think it it speaks to that larger thing is like, you think that life change is going to be horrific and so scary and you can't see over the edge. Right. I wish I had, I mean, here's the thing is like, it's hard for me to be like, I wish I go back and change it. Cause I have like a wonderful husband and, and like my life is my two year old. And yeah. so I could never, I would never want to give that up obviously, yeah. but I wish I had entered addiction or entered, um, recovery earlier, mm-hmm. um, to, you know, live more of my life yeah. free from 
alcohol and drugs because there was a lot of fear and a lot of um, really bad times, Mm -hmm. I would say. So, you know, I think it's all fear-based. I think that's the thing that I've learned in recovery and in business is that we're so fear-driven as people and being able to confront that fear um, with grace Mm -hmm. Um, because often people confront fear with um, overconfidence and Mm -hmm. ego. But if we can drop that and face it with grace, um, you know, we can, we can really accomplish so much. Yeah. Um, I won't say anything like accomplish anything because I feel like there's various thought, but I think people can accomplish a lot when, um, yeah, you meet fear with grace for sure. So is that what kind of got you through your, like, was that your turning point is when you kind of. Oh, I didn't. Yeah. I mean, I fucking, I hit rock bottom. I wouldn't say I confronted fear with grace during that period of time. It's just hindsight, right? right? Like you look back on it and you're like, that would have been like the way to approach this, but no, I was a mess. And like, I mean, I've had recent experiences in the past, uh, five years, um, you know, faced with like, um, and not to like drop straight at the end of the episode and like just leave you guys hanging, but, um, I've, um, been grappled with, um, really chronic infertility for five years and, uh, had to have an egg donor and we have a two-year-old, but this past year I'm, I'm actually in my sixth round of IVF, um, three miscarriages. And, uh, this time it's been, I've been able to use that a little bit better, um, this sort of fear and grace, but there have been very, very messy times. Right. But, um, you know, I, I grow every time I go through this stuff, like it just feels like I've always had to have a, some sort of battle, whether yeah. it's my body or my brain or right. mental state. But um, yeah, I do. I feel like I, every time I have to climb this mountain, which I've had to do with addiction, with business and now with, with this, um, you know, I get a little bit better at meeting fear with grace. Right. It's which not, is never perfect, but a great message. I feel like just because yeah. not everyone goes to the extremes, obviously that you went through, but that mm. is just like a, getting a little bit better with, with every every that. battle that's thrown your way, <laughs> yeah, we say progress, not perfection. That's a that's a fundamental twelve step uh, cliche. I'll I'll throw that up. That I think that's a great great one to um, approach your life with. Right? Amazing. So thank yeah. you for being so open and sharing everything with a stranger as a yeah. as a <laughs> company as CEO. Like that's a great thing. I feel like okay. more people should be doing that just because you're yeah. not just you know a CEO. So which is really yeah. Um, you know, it's funny. I recently told somebody about like all the podcasts that I do. And I was like, sometimes I feel like I use podcast hosts as my therapist. <laughs> <laughs> Just talk for an hour. Get there. It's like free therapy. Yeah, literally. So, um, yeah. Amazing. Um, so so thanks. Yeah. You're welcome. Yeah. Thank you for coming on. Where can people find you if they want to? Uh, yeah. So they can follow at Eat Fatso on all platforms. Um, check out eatfatso.com. Um my personal Instagram's out there. Go find it if you really are interested in baby and bread photos. I don't know. <laughs> but yeah, just check out Eat Fat. So at Eat Fat, so on Instagram. Awesome. Well, thank you yeah. again so much for joining me. I know you're a busy yeah. lady and it was great kind of diving into yeah. your life outside of Fatso too, which is such an interesting yeah. thing. So thank you again. Appreciate that. It was great to meet you. Take care. Thank you guys so much for listening. I hope you guys enjoyed this episode as much as I enjoyed recording it. Um, Like I said, this was like my favorite episode that I've done. So I hope you guys felt the same way. Um, If you're not already following my Instagram at Lately Life, definitely go check that out. I would always appreciate some 
constructive feedback, some suggestions. Let me know who you want to hear from next, and hopefully I can make that happen. So yeah, thanks for sticking around, and I will see you guys next time.